0: Well, hello, my name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. So glad to be with you here today for our study of Exodus. I've read the book of Exodus um, several times, but this is the first time I've ever studied the book in depth, and uh, I love how every time I study or tackle a new portion of scripture, it kind of opens up a whole new world to me. I trusted Christ about 25ish years ago and hadn't really been exposed to the Bible at all as a child and when I became a believer, I knew I'd need to read the Bible and find out what it said and um, just assumed that it would be sort of full of rules and ancient people that were hard to um, relate to quickly figured out that wasn't the case and that people were people and they um, were surprisingly similar to um, me. So its relevancy and sort of its relatability no longer surprised me, but it's still something I notice and sort of love about the scriptures. and. At first glance, when we look at these first couple chapters of Exodus, we think, hey, Hebrew slaves in Egypt, a little boy that's raised as a prince in a palace, that seems pretty far-fetched, pretty far from my life, but just under the surface of this chapter, and really all of the stories in the Bible, because there's nothing new under the sun, and people are people, um, are such stories just that relate to us so well. So I love that about what we're reading today because you get this like epic storytelling in Exodus and then people who are just like us. So let's begin by opening up our Bibles to um, Exodus chapter two and let's read together verses one through 10. We're gonna dive right in because we have uh, 80 years of Moses' life to tackle in the next few minutes so we can't waste any time. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, made of bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, "'This is one of the Hebrew children.' This, the, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, "'Shall I go and call, you, uh, call a nurse from the Hebrew women "'to nurse the child for you?' and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So here is the record of the first 40 years of Moses' life. You know, last week in Exodus chapter one, we got this big picture, a bird's eye view of what's happening to all of God's people and they are not in a good place. Grim, backbreaking slavery, no end in sight. And then this unthinkable edict from Pharaoh that all the Hebrew boys were to be killed at birth. This was a time of just deep darkness and misery and fear that is enveloping God's people. In chapter two, we pull away from that bird's eye view of God's people as a whole and hone in on this one Hebrew family, the family of Moses. Moses will become a hero, a leader, a savior of his people, but for now, he just is um, part of a typical Hebrew family. We know from other places in scripture that his mom and dad were named Amram and Jochebed. The fact that they are Levites means that they were from the tribe of Levi, which would have been one of Jacob's uh, 12 sons. They're both from that tribe. And Moses was at least baby number three in the family. There's already an older son, Aaron, and a daughter, Miriam. So Jochebed found herself pregnant during this really um, terrible and crushing time in their history when Pharaoh had said all the Hebrew boys were to be killed at birth and don't you imagine during those months of pregnancy how she prayed and hoped that this baby would be another girl because if only it were a girl she would be safe and I've thought over and over about all of those Hebrew families who were pregnant during this time, and um, the months that they waited to find out whether it would be a boy or a girl, and then the moment at birth when they looked to see, and there would have either been great relief um, or great pain there. This baby was a boy, but his story does not play out like so many of the other stories did in other homes. Um, among the Hebrews, other factors were at play here in this simple slave hut. There will be the groundwork for a man to emerge who will be used by God to set his people free. This little family could not have known it at the time. The whole nation of Israel couldn't have known it then, but God had an extraordinary plan for this baby boy. Purposely, sovereignly, God was at work knowing when and how he would set his people free long before they knew about it. In the midst of their suffering, I think it must have looked like and felt like God was nowhere to be seen, he had no plan, he was not there, but he did. God's hand was on this baby's life shaping and molding him to become their rescuer and their leader and their hero. So the consensus seems to be that Moses was the Gerber baby prototype. His mom thought he was a fine and beautiful child. Every mom thinks their baby is a fine and beautiful child. We have all um, maybe seen or had one of those babies that's sort of red and blotchy and pinched and pointy-headed at birth and mom and dad still think they're the most beautiful thing that's ever been born. That wasn't Moses, he really was a fine and beautiful child, extraordinarily, noticeably so. And the original language even seems to indicate that there was something maybe more than just big eyes and chubby cheeks and beautiful skin, that there would have been maybe a spiritual beauty that surrounded him as well. And I think that would have been wrapped up in his destiny as God's man, and that would have radiated from him. God used baby Moses' beauty to compel those around him to care for him in extraordinary ways. In faith, Moses' parents defied the mighty Pharaoh's decree to kill him. Instead, Amram and Jochebed came up with a plan to hide Moses. Their decision must have been very difficult on a practical level. It was personally dangerous, but it wasn't born out of simple desperation. And we know this because of what Hebrews 11:23 on our verse sheet tells us about Um, Moses' parents. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, Because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And it looks like I missed um, Acts 7.20. Let me go back and read that. At the time Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight and was brought up for three months in his father's house. That's where we get that idea of the um, spiritual beauty that radiated from him as well. What, What Moses' parents did, they did by faith, What I love so much about Moses' parents is that from a simple worldly perspective, from what they could see, from what the world would see of them, they were a people without choices and without power. They were slaves at the mercy of a powerful ruler. But their faith in the living God rejected powerlessness. Instead of looking around and seeing only their pitiful circumstances, They chose instead to look at the face of their God, and when they did, they could act on the truth of Jeremiah 32, on your verse sheet. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched harm. Nothing is too hard for you. Knowing their God, his loving kindness, his authority over all creation, gave them a certainty that though unseen, he was bigger and more powerful than Pharaoh. And so for three months, they were able to hide baby Moses. There wouldn't have been any putting him down and letting him cry it out at night. There would have been no getting him on a sleep schedule. Jochebed, with the help of her family, would have worked hard to keep Moses quiet and within their home But after three months, the time came where he could be hidden no more. We don't know how or when, but a plan was made that was both dangerous and perfectly genius. And because of the faith of Amram and Jochebed, I am convinced that that plan came about prayerfully and in total dependence on God. I'm also convinced it was a plan in the truest sense of the word. I don't think it came together quickly. It must have required the spark of a crazy idea and then very careful observation and planning of Pharaoh's daughter's habits and those for maids as to when they came to the river, what they did there, where they were, and when the time came, Jochebed couldn't go to Hobby Lobby and buy the perfect little basket to put her boy in. She would have made one. And can you imagine the constant prayers whispered as she bent over it and wove that basket so tightly together? I imagine such tenderness and determination and just whispering to God. It would have taken a long time and been um, quite a laborious effort, I think, It's interesting the language that is spoken of about the basket here in the original language with it being daubed with pitch and making it watertight. It's exactly like the description that is given in Genesis when Moses built the ark and made that watertight. Just like the ark was built to save God's people from drowning in the great flood, this basket was just as carefully constructed to save Moses from drowning in the Nile River. Without being seen, Moses is placed in the basket and then she carefully nestles him among the tall reeds that would have grown along the side of the river. That was so that he wouldn't float off. He could stay put for a while. But now after all the planning and the praying, the moment comes when Jochebed has to literally let go. By faith, this family had not feared Pharaoh's orders months before, and now, by faith, they will know that they have been led by God with a plan to save their child, but her hands have to ungrip that basket and trust. Look with me at Isaiah 26 on your verse sheet. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In Psalm 37:5, commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. I also love how the theologian Chuck Swindoll sums up this scene, do all that you can to prepare yourself for battle, understanding that the ultimate outcome rests with the Lord God. So what happens next? God sovereignly directed Pharaoh's daughter to rescue Moses. His older sister Miriam watches from a distance. Moses' helpless cries and those chubby little cheeks did the trick. She could not resist him. So someone pulling a precious crying baby out of a river is an easy enough thing to understand. But what comes next is so from the hand of God. As the women fuss over the baby, figure out that he must be one of those Hebrew boys that that Pharaoh had ordered killed, big sister Miriam really very boldly approaches, offers to have one of the Hebrew women nurse him. Now given the status difference between Miriam as a slave girl and Pharaoh's daughter and even her maids, Miriam's willingness to approach this scene and speak to Pharaoh's daughter was incredibly brave. God's hand was with her, that risk paid off, No Hobby Lobby for baskets, no target for formula. So the baby would have had to have been nursed um, and fed by a wet nurse. That would have been a common practice of the day. But here is where God's kindness and mercy and grace shine so brightly through. Moses' family is the one that's allowed to care for him as a baby. Miriam gets to take that baby right back home to her mama to be nurtured and loved and fed and prayed for and raised and paid to do it during this time. In the midst of all of the hardship in their lives and the stress of the last months, I cannot think of anything more sweet and lovely than that moment where Moses gets to come back home. What an indescribable gift from God that was. And that day, children were nursed for around three years. So that was probably the amount of time that Moses spent back home with his parents. Once Moses was of weaning age, he was taken back to Pharaoh's daughter and adopted by her. We can only imagine what that day would have been like, that mixture of um, heartbreak at giving him up but also the gratitude at the time that they had with him to love him and nurture him, to pour truth about who God was into him every single day. And again, Moses' parents must physically take their hands off of their son and trust God to take care of him when they could not. This story is one to come back to over and over again in our lives when we face situations that require us to trust God Our God is capable and trustworthy here. He is equally capable and trustworthy to handle our circumstances, whatever they are. No more details are given here about Moses' upbringing as an Egyptian in the royal household, but we do get some insight from Acts 7.22. That's on your verse sheet, and before we read it, I wanna go back and talk about why we mention Acts so often as we're studying Exodus 2. Acts is about the story of the New Testament church that is formed just after Jesus' death and resurrection. Acts chapter seven is about the very first Christian martyr named Stephen. Stephen had been falsely accused by the ruling authority of the day as he was um, boldly proclaiming the gospel, but he was speaking heresy against God and against Moses. Um, by the Holy Spirit, he gives testimony before those who had falsely accused him. And much of that testimony is a uh, basically a, a compact recital of Old Testament history that has a lot of... Um, details about Moses in it. Some of what Stephen includes in his speech fill in some details that are not in Exodus. So it's helpful to look at what Stephen said about Moses as we study here in chapter two. So Acts 7.22 says, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. So Moses is reared as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, grandson of Pharaoh, probably had the best, most complete formal education the world had to offer at the time, and it appears that he flourished under it, and that was God preparing him for a future that we'll see soon, too. So let's take a moment to notice something that I think is so cool. Every character involved in keep us keeping Moses alive and seeing him into adulthood and chapters one and two is a woman. Reaching all the way back to chapter one, the midwives who um, worked so bravely to save the Hebrew boys were women. It was Jochebed and her daughter Miriam who pulled off this bold and brilliant plan to get Moses into the hand of Pharaoh's daughter and then get him back home again. It was Pharaoh's daughter who, despite the evil intentions of her own father, her own probably cultural upbringing, somehow managed to be allowed to raise this Hebrew slave boy as her own within the royal household. And a woman's life in that time and place was nothing like it was today. These women were without status, without power, without rights, and yet God used each of them in powerful, history-changing, extraordinary ways. So while we as modern Western women experience none of the kind of oppression that these women experienced in their time, I think there are still times that we can feel too insignificant or unqualified to step into God's kingdom work The women in Moses' story reminds us that God uses the least of us to be his hands and feet. God uses ordinary people to accomplish his work. He doesn't need our natural status or wisdom or ability. He simply needs our willingness to hear his call and to follow him and do what he asks us to do. If God could use a couple of female slaves that were at the literal bottom rung of society to change the world, he can use us too. Okay, let's move on to Moses' second 40 years. That first 40 years went pretty fast to us. Follow along with me as I read verses 11 through 15. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. We know again from that passage in Acts that Moses was 40 when he goes out to his people. Though he had spent the last 37 years or so in complete immersion in everything Egyptian, Egyptian, Culture, education, religion, dress, food, relationships, home. Twice in verse 11 he identifies with the Hebrew slaves as his people. God had a plan for Moses' life and he is going to need to feel that Hebrewness to his core in order to fulfill that plan. plan. It's interesting to see Moses' personality emerge in these verses. He was quick to notice his people's hardships. You know, sometimes I think when we've been spared from the suffering of other people, it's hard to be empathetic and really feel what they're feeling and be a part of their lives. Living among royalty, I think that would have been very easy for Moses not to have identified with his People, it would have been easy not to identify with ordinary Egyptian people, much less somebody that was um, a slave, but he was so quick to see their plight, and he was quick to act when he didn't like how he saw them being treated. Moses' anger at this Egyptian sla- uh, slave, uh, the Egyptian beating the Hebrew slave, really must have come from his innate understanding of what was right and wrong in God's sight because there was nothing illegal about what was being done. Slaves could be beaten by their overseer, really by anyone at will. It wasn't even a serious crime at the time to beat a slave to death. If that happened, the um, person who had killed the slave would simply have to pay back the um, slave owner if it wasn't his own. Given that culture, Moses' reaction to seeing this slave being beaten was uncommonly severe. Impulsively, Moses kills the Egyptian who was beating the slave, and he quickly buries him to hide the evidence. It wasn't such a big deal uh, to kill the slave. It was a very big deal for Moses to have killed that Egyptian. There were laws protecting them. The next day, Moses again follows his urge to be out among his people and he breaks up a fight among two Hebrews. Again from Acts 7, we know that he was compelled by a sense of right and wrong and a desire to, offend, uh, to defend the oppressed when he did that. So this picture of Moses as a man of action is quickly emerging, emerging. and again he's right in the middle of the mix, his efforts were not appreciated This is the first time, but not the last, that we will see the people whom God has asked Moses to lead grumble and complain and resist. It comes up again in the weeks to come. I bet he had no idea how many times he was gonna hear that happen. His interference is rejected, and they reveal that they know he's killed the Egyptian. They're not going to protect him. If they knew, everyone knows, and Moses is in big trouble here. It wasn't Moses' motives that got him in such serious trouble, it was his independence. When Moses saw that slave being mistreated, he was justifiably angry. We read that he looked around to see who else saw him and he immediately took matters into his own hands. He did what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. What he didn't do is stop and seek God's counsel. He had good motives, he wanted to right a wrong, and God hates injustice even more than Moses did. But Moses followed his plan and his timing. Repaying justice with more injustice is not God's way. It did not achieve the desired goal, and in fact, the results were disastrous. When Pharaoh finds out, he orders Moses to be killed, and now Moses is forced to flee from everything and everyone he has ever known and loved and go and uh, live in the land of Midian. So if we are going to be women who make wise decisions, both the daily ones and the big life-altering ones, we must not look to the left and the right. We must look directly into the face of God and see what he has for us and only then can our decisions be right. Look with me at Isaiah 55 on your verse sheet. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord's. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Proverbs 19, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Okay, let's continue looking at verse 16 to see what happens as Moses goes to Midian. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came to, and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raul, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and she called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses now embarks on many years as, of life as an outcast in Midian. We have a map here that shows just how far Midian, Midian was away, how far May, Moses fled. Ramses and Pithom were the uh, big storehouse cities in Egypt that the slaves had built. Moses had to flee across Egypt, across um, this huge desert. If you look to where Midian is, it's about 200 miles to the east of where he came from. Uh, There's lots of desert there, and then it's not labeled, but it's called the Gulf of Aqaba that's there just to the west side of Midian. The promised land is up to the north, will there later be. This was a huge expanse of land that he crossed and left, just a wide physical gulf that was between and land, that was between him and everything that he had ever known Midian was a very arid land. The people there were generally nomadic herders. It would have been an incredibly different physical environment from that fertile Nile River, from palace life that he had known. It must have been a harsh and difficult adjustment, but it was a safe distance and that's what he needed. I think hanging out by the town well must have been the ancient equivalent of match.com because Moses found his future wife there. Isaac found his wife by a well, if you remember. Jacob found his wife by a well back in Genesis. This match wasn't just a matter, though, of Moses being in the right place at the right time, nor was it back when his ancestors found their wives there. What we see is some of Moses' really outstanding character qualities again shine through. These seven tired, overworked sisters come to the well. Their job is to draw up enough water for their father's flock. That would have been hard back breaking work as it was and they don't get to do it easily. These shepherds, I guess who didn't wanna wait their turn and their women try to shoo them off. It's a big ordeal and Um, What does Moses do? He comes to their defense. Not only does he protect the women from the shepherd and tells them to get back, let them have their turn, he actually waters their animals for them. And they get to go home early. And I love the next part of the story. Their dad says, why are you already home? And they're like, well, this handsome guy watered our animals. You know, water the animals for us, so we're home early. I guess he's still hanging out by the well. He has nowhere else to go. And dad says, go back and get him and invite him home for dinner. And the rest is sort of history. They do bring him back home. Moses hits it off with their father, Raul. We'll know much more about him in chapters to come. He's also known later as Jethro. And also with one of the daughters, Zipporah, who he ends up marrying, God deals so graciously with Moses here, providing him generously with this new family and home. But we get this real insight into Moses, still very painful separation from what he's always known. Because when he names his son Gershom, which means a sojourner in an exile in the land, it really, reveals his heart of separation and loneliness and feeling like an exile and a man who is not where he's supposed to be. He's alienated from anyone and everything he's ever known. He's a wanted criminal. He's rejected by both his Hebrew um, people and his Egyptian family and his pain is deep. But God is not one to waste our pain if we will let him use it. No doubt, God was shaping Moses during these years into the man he would later become. During those years, he would um, become a man that God would be able to use in mighty ways. Living as a foreigner, longing for a home would have given him another deep opportunity to identify with his Hebrew people who had been living for hundreds of years as foreigner in a land that wasn't their own. He was going to need that identi- uh, ability to identify with them later as he leads them. It would have given him great courage to stand on their behalf in front of Pharaoh when they la- and then when they later get testy and impatient with him. Physically, he would have learned to live off the land as a nomad, um, which would have not been a skill he would have known how to do from his palace life. He would have even gotten to be very familiar with the geography of the land, which will be important as he leads them out of Egypt. Most importantly, Moses had years to learn how to live God's way instead of his own. When he killed that Egyptian, he, had take matter, he took matters and timing into his own hands Moses' years as an exile in Midian were a direct consequence of that pride and self-rule. So during his 40 years in in Midian, I only imagine the countless hours he spent as a shepherd getting to know God deeply, praying, leaning on the Lord when life was good, leaning on the Lord when life was hard, humility, Would have been a requirement for the kind of heart change that I believe Moses had. And he did humble himself before the Lord because when he emerges from Midian, as we will see next week, he is a different man than when he arrived. Look with me at Romans 5 on your verse sheet. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given us. Moses' long journey reminds us to submit our will and plans to God, trusting that his ways are always right and always best. His journey also reminds us to allow our hardships to draw us closer to God, to draw us deeper in our faith so that we can be used by him. Moses did not leave Midian until he was 80 years old. It is never too late. So let's finish chapter two by reading verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Israel cries out to God in these beautiful verses. These verses are basically a summary of chapters one and two and then they lead us into the rest of what happens in the book of Exodus. God's people continue to suffer during Moses' years in Midian. This passage pulls us away from Moses' personal story back to the Hebrew nation as a whole. 80 years have now passed since chapter two opened and circumstances have not changed. There's yet another new Pharaoh who continues the oppression of God's people and you really get a sense of the duration of the suffering of the people in these verses. These people have been crying out to God for a long, long time and it must have seemed like God wasn't there or wasn't listening or didn't care or couldn't do anything about what was going on. But he was there, he was with them from the beginning. He was with them generations ago when he pursued Abraham and promised to make his descendants as numerous as the stars, when he promised to bless them and give them a life of his own. He was there with Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob. He was there from the first day all the sons of Jacob came to Egypt to escape that famine. He's been with them all those hundreds of years that those descendants have built families and remained strong and resilient despite their enslavement and he's been there with them since the day Moses was born. It was always God's plan to use Moses to set his people free. There wasn't one part of Moses' miraculous life that from the day he was spared at birth to all those days afterwards that were not under God's sovereign control The time just hasn't quite come yet for God to reveal his plan. But God heard and God remembered his people and God saw their suffering and God knew the awesome story that was to come. In the meantime though, what were the people to do? They turned to God and they cast their burdens on him and they waited for him. They weren't in a position to do anything else and that was good. There are times when we suffer and it may feel like God isn't there because we're just not getting any relief, but he is there. What's true for the Israelites is true for us today. When we cry out to God, he hears, and he sees, and he knows, and in the midst of our suffering, our job is to be faithful and to trust him while we wait on his timing. And when our feelings tell us it's taking too long, or that he can't do anything about it, our job is to take those thoughts captive and replace them with truth. Our Bibles are full of truth to cling to in hard times. We had some of those in our homework this week and in our waiting times. I've got a couple more on our verse sheet. Look with me at Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And John 14, 27 says, peace I leave with you. This is Jesus speaking. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The truth is, on this side of heaven, life will not be without suffering. Some of that we cause ourselves and plenty of it we do not. But God is always at work in the lives of his people. He is sovereignly working for our good. That's true when we can see it, and it's true when we don't. Trust him in your waiting. Hope in him, and he will not fail you. He hears, and he sees, and he knows, and this is a great blessing to us. And so as we close, let me just pray for us and thank him for that. Lord God, you are so good to us. You draw us to you. You care for us. You protect us every minute of every day. We thank you and we praise you, God. I'm just asking that we would remember that about you today, that we would be women who are marked by a deep faith. a deep trust in you as we walk through our days. And that trust would be in you alone. And it's in your precious name we pray, amen.